Hey, if you have a Bible, um, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you have one of these handy-dandy little um, prayer uh, scripture journals, uh, you can grab one of those. And we are slowly making our way through the book of, of Philippians. If you didn't happen to get one of these little uh, scripture journals, they have them in the back, um, and you can get one there. Okay. Well, when I, um, when I was in college, this was in the early 90s, I was starting to really get excited about my faith. And there's different seasons and people have different journeys and people kind of fall in love with God in different kind of moments in their life. But for me, in college, my faith really started coming alive. And, uh, and when you, for me, as a, as a, I was 19, I guess, and I was ready to really follow Jesus. And because I really wanted to follow Jesus, I really wanted some helpful guides and some guidelines. And if you're young in your faith, what's helpful is you start having some rules to follow. You get some good, nice rules, and then you're like, I am crushing this thing. Well, one of the rules that I didn't know was a rule until someone who was a little older than me said, listen, just so you know, as a good follower of Christ who's 19 in the early 90s, you should probably only listen to like DC Talk and, and um, Stephen Curtis Chapman and, you know, Amy Grant, things like that. And the bummer is I had an incredible CD collection and my all-time favorite CD in the early 90s was the Landis Morissette Jagged Little Pill. Any Landis Morris fans? Oh, that angry 90s woman genre. Oh my gosh, it is so good. It was my favorite CD, and uh, I mean, Pearl Jam was pretty good too, but I mean, I have like this inner, this inner feminine side, and I just like, Alanis, you're speaking my love language. But as I was growing in faith, and as you know, I had this older Christian guy who would come in, he would mentor me and disciple me, and I'm listening to a jagged little pill, and he's like, I don't think these themes are very Christian. And I'm like, I guess you're right. And, uh, and so... The themes weren't very Christian. The language wasn't very Christian. And I really wanted to be a good Christian. And so um, this was back uh, where, where you could sell back CDs. You guys, so I took all my, my, uh, my secular CDs, uh, and Alanis Morissette was the hardest one. And I remember walking down to this little uh, CD place, and I thought, can I use that money? Is that, do I have to give that money to God too? And I was like having all like, like these, these wrestlings of trying to figure out how to be a good legalist, you know, like good young Christians. And so I, sell, I sold my CDs, and then uh, my mentor, like six months later, broke my heart, so I bought it again. And I think over, like, the, over my college career, I, 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 for sure I bought and sold Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill like three or four little times, three or four times. Um, but now, uh, thanks to Spotify, it's on my running playlist, and, uh, and I let it rip. But I tell you that because I think what is so interesting is that there's something deep inside of us that long to be, do the right thing. We want to be good people. And as we grow in our walk with God, we want to do the things that God wants us to do. And so we begin to learn what those things are. And there's this, there's this great graph. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what it is, it basically models a, high, a college freshman in humanity's life journey. And what that means is you start knowing nothing, and then immediately, once you know just a little bit, you know everything there is to know, right? When I was 19 in the beginning of my faith, I knew everything there was. I was debating people. I was having the most intense uh, theological conversations at 19, knowing God for like one whole month. I was ready to go. You know everything. And you know, like when you, when you, if you sent your kid off to college and they come back, you know, at Thanksgiving, you're like, whoa, simmer down. You know, you had one half of a semester, but you know, they know everything. And, and there's something about that. Like when, when you, like you watch a documentary and you're like, I know everything there is to know about saturated fats. No, 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 no. You watch the documentary. That's it. You, you invested a whole hour and a half. But it's, it's in us. Like there's something deep in us that longs to be right. And I love this effect because basically they, they, scientists have graphed this out. You start out knowing nothing and very quickly you think you know everything. 
You're the most righteous person on the planet. But then if you stay at it long enough, immediately that just drops off, right? To there's got to be more of this than I thought. I'm never going to understand this. And then it begins to start making sense. And then trust me, it's complicated. That's the journey. And what's incredible, there's all sorts of uh, ways that this graph has been applied, but even college professors, right? College professors who have spent their entire life studying a subject, the more you know about something, the more you actually have a little bit of humility and you're like, this is a little more complicated than we think, right? And the idea is this, when we move towards Christ, we long to be people who know and love Jesus. And we have to recognize that they're part of our movement towards Christ is this journey. And if we find ourselves at the top where we know everything, then know that you actually know nothing, right? When you're at your most self-righteous, you actually are the farthest away um, on this journey towards Christ. The more you move towards Christ, the more you understand who he is, the more you understand what he longs for you, the more you recognize that those rules that began to shape who you are, what it meant to be a Christian disciple, was just the beginnings. That was just the playpen for this adult life of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to make our way through Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at this idea that we're going to be clarifying our foundation. And what this means is, as we're moving towards Christ, as we're becoming people who want to be more and more like Jesus, we need to understand, well, what are the things that we build our life upon? And this morning, we're going to look at this idea that we clarify our foundation. What is the thing that we build our life on? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right, whoever listens to my words and puts them into practice, they're like a person who built their house on the rock. Right? We're all building a house. Some of us are building a house in the sand. Some of us are building on a rock. Some of us are doing half and half. But the scripture says the waves will come. The wind will come. There will be trial. There will be pain. There will be hard things. That is, that's, that is going to happen. But what matters is what is your house built on? And Jesus says the person whose house is built on my teaching and puts them into practice, whose, persons whose house is built on righteousness, being right before God and then living rightly, is going to have this incredible foundation. All right, so with all that being said, hop into your little scripture journals, and we're going to start in Philippians chapter 3 with, I'm not going to lie, a pretty offensive statement, but it's the Bible, so I don't know what we're going to do with that, but we're going to jump into it. Here we are, Philippians chapter 3. Paul begins, look out for those dogs. And I'm like, okay, there's got to be some more to this. I'm going to look at some commentaries, because obviously dogs was this kind-hearted Greek way of saying, hey, maybe there's some people there who aren't quite doing it right. Turns out it's exactly what it means. Look out for those dogs, those dirt balls, the people who are like the vermin and trash. Like Paul, like always say, don't dehumanize, don't dehumanize. Let's speak kindly to each other. And here Paul is pointing out to these, these people, which I'll tell you about in a second, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's a great memory verse. It can apply to so many things. So it goes on to say, For we are the true circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul, and when you read other passages of Scripture, you realize Paul just is this nonstop fight. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're kids, they just have the, they're just needling you, needling you, needling you, and you just get so frustrated. Well, Paul... He experienced the grace of God. 
He was a rule follower and he encountered God and God set him free. And he realized that God and his Holy Spirit is welcome for all people from every background, from every kind of lifestyle. And there's this freedom that comes through the Holy Spirit. And, um, and, and everywhere he went, there's always these people who are trying to take this incredible gift of freedom and they were adding all these rules to it. And the ultimate way was all these people, these Gentiles, these were non-Jewish people becoming Christians and all the Jewish Christians were like, hey, that's great, but if you want to be one of us, you need to be circumcised because for thousands and thousands of years, that's what God's people did. And like for us, we think that's, well, that's so stupid. Why would you do that? But if you imagine for thousands and thousands of years, that was the marker. And so these Gentile Christians who want to encounter this, this encounter with God, were like, I guess we're being circumcised. And for Paul, he's like, that is an anathema. That is the exact opposite of what the gospel is. Because if we think us doing right is going to get us to heaven, then we miss it. So, so Paul says, look out for those dogs. And I love this because I, for me, I always imagine like these street preachers. When I was in college, you know, there was a guy doing confrontational evangelism. There was a guy with the big, the big uh, stand. They stand in front of people and they just scream. And you're like, dude, you're killing us for uh, those of us who are trying to figure out to know and love Jesus. But what's interesting is Paul says, look out for those people. And most of us in our posture, because we are the good people, we all know people to look out for. Right, right now, you, you know you had that aunt that was a little too, little too hardcore, a little too fundamentalist. You're like, back off, aunt, right? We all, it was our parents, or it was somebody, we have somebody in our life that was like, I get you're trying to love God, but you're doing it too wrong, and you're making us all look bad. And we all can immediately, like, we, like we're wired to smell that in everybody else. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers who mutilate the flesh. So Paul's trying to say, listen, as we're going to move towards Christ, we're going to clarify our foundation, then the first thing you need to understand is those things that you're building your life on, those do not matter. In fact, if you think you're building your life on anything that you bring to the table, you have missed the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. To the point where he, uh, in the Bible, uses language that we would want none of our kids to use. But that was a different time, you know, it was before we all got woke and stuff. But that, back then, look out for those dogs. All right, so then he goes on and says this. So we're, for the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, verse 4 says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, for if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence, I have more. So he begins to say, all right, listen, there's no reason to put confidence in the flesh. All right, we are saved by the grace of God. But if you were to put confidence in the flesh, sit down and take a listen to me. Here I am, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And here's what's totally brutal. All day I can point and say, look out for those dogs. Look out for those people. But I think the word that God has for us this morning is, hold on, I think we actually might be those people. We might be those people. Because the reality is that we all want to be right. We all want to be good people. We all find things that we have confidence in that may be different from other people, but they're the things that we root our life in. And here Paul says um, that we're circumcised, that um, he was circumcised. Um, he was a, uh, from Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew, Pharisee. He's a persecutor of the church and he's blameless. So listen to these categories, because think about it. We all have things like this that we put our confidence in. One, he was circumcised. Maybe it's our gender. 
for all of human history, being a man was awesome. But now the future is female, I keep reading. But we all have different ways, right? It's our gender. Um, he was a son of Israel. He had a certain race. He was part of God's people, God's chosen people, right? We have, a, there's, there's a, maybe, maybe it's your race. He was in the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the tribes uh, just north of Judah. And when, when Israel rebelled, uh, the tribe of Benjamin stayed uh, with Israel. They were like this most patriarch. That's where Jerusalem is located. It's like being like in Washington, D.C. If you love politics, you're like, oh, I live in D.C., maybe Virginia, but oh, that's my people, you know? If you live in Ohio, like it doesn't matter. But right, so Benjamin, so he's from the, he's this patriotic grouping of people. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What that means is his mom was Hebrew, his dad was Hebrew, they spoke Hebrew, they, they kept kosher, right? They did all the things religiously that would make them good and noble people. He had the right culture. He was a Pharisee. He was educated. He was actually in the highest class in the Jewish world, right? Because uh, Torah was the center of Jewish life, if you were the teacher of Torah, man, then you were the top. He was a Pharisee. He knew God's word, which means he probably memorized almost all the Torah that was in him. He had a reason to be proud. He was a persecutor of the church. He was an activist. And what I love is all these seeds for deeds out there, right? That God's put on people's hearts to, to run after certain things. But if you've ever started running after certain things, like this is what God's put on us to do. And how is the church not behind all this? And you realize, no, that's what God put on you to do. And, and you wonder where everyone else isn't on board. Well, we all have those things. We, we find pride in our activism. And he goes on to say, because he's blameless. And really what that means at the end of the day that Paul says, hey, I'm a good person. And I know if you're honest, you would say that you're a good person. And really, whenever we say I'm a good person, all we're saying is I'm a better person than most of the people around me. That's really what that means. Because we're not really good people, but we are better than most people around us. And when we kind of make our foundation on being better than most people around us, then we're missing out on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, look out for those dogs. Just so you know, you actually might be one of those people. You might be one of those self-righteous people. And so whether, you, whether there's self-righteous people in your life that are crushing you or you're a self-righteous person in yourself, God is like, okay, simmer down. Let's just take a breath because there's about to be some incredible good news. Are you ready for some good news? Okay. How many of you guys like Meatloaf? Yes. The singer. Remember that song? I would do anything for love, but I won't do... What does that even mean? I don't know. But as I was preparing this message, I kept, I could not get it out of my mind. I, I'm like, oh, I love meatloaf. I would do anything for love. Like all week I'm listening to it, listening to it. And then I actually listened to the song. I was like, oh, I don't really like that song as much as I thought I would. I mean, take a look at this picture of meatloaf. It's a, it's, it's a little alarming. I know. I just need a little break halfway through the sermon. Okay. Listen to this. In verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this is where it begins to turn. Whether you have self-righteous people in your life who are crushing you, whether you are um, a self-righteous person who is crushing other people, Paul is saying, listen, we need to start with this. Whatever things we thought we had, we consider it a loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. And the reality is, is that in our real lives, we would do anything for love, like Meatloaf would say. And I, you know this to be true. I mean, I remember when I was in seventh grade and I had a crush on this girl and, oh, she was incredible. In fact, here's a short little story. Um, I went to a Halloween party with her and she dared me, truth or dare, to go in the closet seven minutes in heaven. She dared me. 
Oh yeah, she's a keeper. But I didn't hit puberty yet. And so I freaked out and made a joke and ran away. And then she dumped me like the next day because I couldn't like satisfy her womanly, womanly deals, I guess. And I was brokenhearted. But like the very next day I hit puberty. Like that's like, God just saved me right there. And, uh, but for all my middle school career, I loved her. I'm like, I should have made out with her and I just needed to at some point. And so my whole seventh grade and eighth grade career, I just spent sneaking out of the house. I didn't care if I got in trouble. I didn't care if I got grounded because I would do anything for a chance to maybe make out with this woman, this girl. Well, she felt like a woman at the time, right? I remember when Kay and I were first dating, I lived in uh, Santa Barbara, Kay lived up in Chico, and I would drive 10 hours to go visit her just so that we could make out for a few hours. And then I would drive 10 hours back and go to school. I didn't care. I would do anything, anything for love, right? When we are passionate, when we are in love, when there's things that are, when there's people that we love, it is a no-brainer to walk away from normal things. We give up money, we give up resources, we give up status, we give up friends, we give up everything when we realize that there's someone worth giving those things up for. We do it in silly ways in seventh grade, we do it in silly ways when we begin to have romantic relationships, but in a, in a cosmic way, in a spiritual way, when we begin to understand the love of God, when we begin to understand that God loves us, He extends kindness to us, He longs to be in relationship with us, and He longs for us, His people, to be His followers, to embrace His good, good news of grace and mercy, that we've been made right with Him for nothing that we've done, that righteousness, self-righteousness, those are off the table. You, exactly who you are, are the recipient of all of God's love and all of God's affection. When you can get your head and heart around that, all of a sudden, the things that you've anchored your life to, the things that you are building your life around, whether it's your gender, your class, your, your, your status, whatever those things are, those begin to move away and you gladly give away. You consider those things garbage for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say this in verse, we'll start again in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Gosh, what, this is an incredible, powerful passage of scripture. And I think for the most part, I think we go, that's beautiful. And maybe I'll put that on a plaque, but like, that's really a hard like test. Like how much do you love God back? We get that God loves us, but how much do you love God back? How much have you been in, in, impacted by God that you're willing to kind of step away from your worldview of thinking that you're a good person because you're an activist about a couple certain things and just put those on the side and say, no, no, I actually love God. And I love God so much that those things are important, but those are not the foundation of my life. I'm, gonna, I'm going to actually move towards Christ, that Jesus is my foundation. And as I move for, towards him, whatever sort of things he invites me to do, whatever sort of adventures he has for me, whatever sort of things he asks me to do, I'm going to do those things. And I found that every single thing that God has invited us to do is really costly. It is really costly. But what's wild is when you say yes, you don't think it's costly. You're like, I cannot believe that God has invited us on this adventure. And then it's costly. And you don't even think about it because you've considered all a loss for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Gosh, that is my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for our church, that we would recognize that we would suffer the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And this is why. This is what this is 
the, the anchor of it all. In verse 9, it says this, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the whole anchor of this whole thing is not a works-based righteousness. It's not do this and then God will love you. Don't do this and then God will love you. The idea is this, that we want to be found in him. That the core of our being is wrapped up in our identity. Our righteousness begins not in our works. Our righteousness begins in God's posture towards you, which is love and kindness. And your acceptance of that love and kindness being adopted in the family of God and your new identity no longer being you and your weird family story or maybe your incredible family story or how much money you have or how much status you have or what gifts you bring or what thing you run after. Your identity is rooted in being a daughter and son of Jesus Christ, of the King Most High, to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that righteousness that comes through faith. Our righteousness is not our own. We cannot do enough good things in order to, for God to be like, okay, actually, you really are a good person. It's like we all, if we all jumped, had a jumping contest, I would for sure lose. Um, you know, some of you guys would actually do better than I would. But if, if we compare ourselves, we go, oh man, you're a good jumper, you're a bad jumper. But if we have to jump from here to the moon, all of a sudden, we are not jumping very well, right? It is not a good deal at all. And so our righteousness is the same thing. There's nothing you can do that's going to earn God's favor. He's like, oh, okay, just kidding. You're doing great. No, our righteousness comes through faith. And because of our righteousness, now we actually get to have good standing with God. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight with someone or I'm in a fight with my kids every now and then, more lately these days. And as we're having a fight, right, I love them. They know I love them. Like, the love thing, that's not up, up for question. But there's like a little tension, right? There's a little awkwardness. There's a little like, what are we doing here? Well, righteousness means that awkwardness is gone. There's nothing that you need to be ashamed of as you encounter God. All of your sin, all of your shame, all of your weird stuff in your head, all of your garbage has been wiped clean. Jesus, just, you are free. Your status is righteous. When Jesus looks at God, looks at you, looks at you through Christ, and he just sees the incredible daughter and son that he dreamt up since the beginning of time. And so you have this identity that you're found in him. You have this security because you're in right standing. And once you have this security for being in right standing, you now have freedom, right? If, if my kids and I were having a fight, we sit around the dinner table, it's like the worst time ever, right? If I'm having a good relationship with my kids and we're going for a drive and we're laughing and listening to music, it's like a whole different deal. And so when we recognize that God forgives us and we are in right standing. Now we're free to be all that God has for us. And I love that we, uh, that we had a dedication next hour. We're actually going to do a, a reaffirmation of baptismal vows. And it's just telling the story over and over and over again that we are God's people, that we're adopted into the family, that we have right standing because of our faith in Christ. And because of our faith in Christ, we don't need to judge one another. We don't need to belittle one another. We don't put each other down because my righteousness is not dependent on being better than you. My righteousness is because I'm in Christ. It's an incredible, incredible gift. And because of that, we can then give more and more of our heart. And as we give more and more of our heart, our, our love matures. Right? And all of a sudden, if you've been in a, a, a relationship for a long time, there's a difference from having this peak of euphoria and willing to get grounded and willing to not sleep and you know, have all these kind of fun parts of being in a new relationship. But the more that you love somebody, the more you actually want to identify with them. 
And so Paul wraps up this passage in verse 10. He says this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. That part's awesome. I would love to know the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So it's one thing that we would do anything for love. And I've said this a lot to my kids, but then it's, 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 it's another thing we have to put into practice. The idea of, I love you to death. Have you ever said to your kids, I love you to death. You love them so much that you would like just jump in front of a bus for them. You would do anything for them. And what's so incredible is there are people who love people to death. This picture is this beautiful story of these moms who have kids who are uh, undergoing cancer treatment. And as a support group, all these moms wanted to identify with their kids and go, listen, we are in it with you. There's a couple pictures of dads, but I mean, look at Oak. I mean, he just buzzed his hair. As a guy, it's not a big deal. We just buzz our hair. But for a woman who your hair is your glory. And these moms are like, listen, our hair is our glory. We spend so much money to dye it and make sure it looks so beautiful and that we have forever youth. But for the sake of our kids, nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm down. But for the sake of our kids, so that they know that they are not freaks, that they know that this is hard, that they are all in. These moms, they shave their heads so they can sit in it with their kids. I love our, I love our church. And I love being a part of a church because there are people who are farther down the road than me. And there's people in this room who have been married way longer than I've been alive. And I watch the way these people who know and love each other for their whole lives are willing to lay down their lives for each other, are willing to sell their homes for the right care, are willing to sit and care for you know, their husband who has dementia or their wife who can't speak as well or for different ailments that come along. And you watch these people and I, you know, at 20, you're like, well, I guess I'm walking away. But when you spent your whole life connected to them, it is your joy to sit with them. It is your joy to navigate these hard things. And I can't believe that we are part of a Christian community where there are such incredible, godly women and men who are modeling that for those of us who are younger of how to sit in that over the long haul. And I think this idea that Jesus invites us to love him to death, to not just share in the power of the resurrection, but to share in his sufferings. In sharing in his sufferings, you think there's no way. But the more that you love Jesus, the more that your maturity grows, the more that your depth grows, you want to do the things that Jesus wants you to do. You want to carry the weight that Jesus carries. When Jesus' heart breaks, when Jesus' heart um, is just all torn up, and when he is mourning and grieving, you, because you love Jesus, you're like, I want to get in that spot, and I want my heart to break. I want to grieve those things. I want to do the hard things. I want to give up my life, my resources, my space, my comfort, so that for the sake of Christ, I can join in his power and his resurrection. And that is what this mature, graduate level spirituality that God is inviting us to. And what I love is moving towards Christ, whether you're brand new in your faith, whether you're like at this tiny little beginning, like exploring, what does it mean to know love Jesus? Or you're at this euphoric time where you're selling all your Lance Morissette CDs, or you're at the end and you're like, I'm going to give it all away so that I can be connected to Christ. Gosh, how fun that we get to share life doing all that. And we don't get to sit, at one another, sit and judge one another and go, you're not as far as me, and you're not as far as me, and you're not as far as me, because we're not good people. Right? Our righteousness is because of what Christ did. And we get to encourage each other to embrace that righteousness. We come to church to remind ourselves of that righteousness. And we spur each other on to know and love him. So here's the last thing for you to think about. How in the world do we develop this foundation? Because I want to be someone 
who loves Jesus to death. I like the fun part of loving Jesus, but I want to grow and I want to be a mature, godly man who will love him to death, who will give up gladly all of my comfort, all of my status, all my resources, whatever Jesus puts in front of me, I will gladly do it. And I'm not there yet, but I want to be that person. So how do we do that? I love that God wired us to be in relationship because we've all had friendships. We've all been in romantic relationships or at least tried really hard to be in them here and there. And, um, and, and what's interesting is the same way in which we build intimacy with one another is the same way that we build intimacy with God. Um, I've, I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's brand new dating. It's a little annoying, but it's also kind of sweet, right? I mean, they love each other. They don't sleep. They're on the phone. They're taking pictures. They spend all their waking time together. All they do is listen. They go, oh, I just love listening to your story. I just love listening. I just love listening. I'm like, oh, wow. The bummer is being around people who are brand new in love around you and your wife when you're not so much in love like that. And I like, see, that's a pretty great date. Oh, see how much they listen? So, you know, we, we sharpen each other. But what's interesting is those things that we do at the beginning— they work because we are single-minded in our affection, in our attention. We do the things that build our hearts towards one another, right? We do the fun dates. We listen. We spend time. We, we give of our heart. We give of our affection. And real life is a little bit harder because our hearts get dinged and they, heart, they get hurt and we get callous and all those things that go along. But Jesus changes us. He molds us. He's giving us this new heart. And God is inviting all of us to take advantage of his righteousness so that we can move towards intimacy with him. And so my simple invitation for you, no matter where you're at on this journey towards Christ, no matter where you're at as you're clarifying this foundation of what it means to build a life on him, just think of what's one thing that you can do. What's one thing that you can do to posture your heart so that you can love Jesus back more and more? Right? Try that in your real life. Think of someone that you're estranged to. Think of your kids or your spouse or your friend. What's one thing that you could just posture yourself towards to knit your heart closer together? Same is true in our walk with God. And as we do that, as we move towards him, we become these incredible, mature women and men who get to express the good news of God to a world that desperately needs it. All these seeds for deeds, which I really hope when you leave um, here, there's this great uh, little um, brochure that tells you all about the seeds for deeds that have happened. And you know what? The truth is, this is totally missing because your seed for deed is not in here yet. God is inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. God is inviting you to tap into his power, into his suffering, to be his people. And we need each other to continue to spur us on towards love and good deeds. So make sure you check those things out as you lead from here. Okay, I'm kind of spinning around. So let's wrap this thing up. If, um, let me pray for us and then we will be all done this morning. <laughs> Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I, I'm so thankful that you are so loving, that you're so long-suffering, that you see the whole game. You see our whole 85 years and you just enjoy the process of all the ups and downs and circles and crashes and burns and skyrockets, and you just find such joy in that process. Just like watching a little kid learn how to walk, you enjoy us learning what it means to find freedom in you. So I pray, God, that we would be people that would long to be righteous, not self-righteous, not good people, but people who have taken full advantage of our right standing in you through your son Jesus and his death on the cross, that we would be free that we would be so in love with you 
that we would love you to death. So grow our spiritual muscles. Put some hard things in front of us, God, so that we can share not just in the power of your resurrection, but in the sufferings as well. And we do all of this for your glory. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen.